Rockers. Speaking Destroy is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Metal Injection co-founder and editor, Robert Pasbani, who's also the co-owner of the Blast Beat Network, which handles digital advertising for his own site, as well as Metal Sucks, Lamb Goat, the PRP, Gear Gods, and Metal Insider, among others. Rob is one of the people responsible for the Metal Injection Livecast and Squared Circle Pit, and he's also a former on-air host for SiriusXM's Liquid Metal. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go into Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, and write a nice little review. Those really help. Reviews like this one from the Doomhammer, from Metallica geeks and metalheads in general. I've been listening to Metallica since I was a young boy in the 80s. They had a huge influence on me in so many ways. As usual, Ryan brings his uncanny ability to explain history in a deep, meaningful way and tap into the wisdom of others in the industry. Thanks, Doomhammer. That is kick-ass. Here's a great review from Gregory Lee 43 which says, This is the podcast you've been waiting for. Enough with the other podcasts you've been listening to. You know, the ones about the stuff and things. You no longer need them. This is the one. Ryan Downey is like a raging stallion covered in armor. Nothing will stop this podcast. Welp, can you top that review? Please try. You can find Speak and Destroy at speakanddestroy.com and on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. And contrary to the Raging Stallion review, you should subscribe to some other podcasts, including my other ones. All part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. There's Pop Curse featuring musicians talking about movies. And No Prize from God, which features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. Including a lot of Metallica-adjacent, speak-and-destroy-friendly guests. So here it is, my conversation with Metal Injection co-founder, Robert Pasbani. This is Speak and Destroy. things I love about doing podcasts in general and particularly this one too is the opportunity to get to know more about people that I've known for a long time and that I like a lot and still satisfy my workaholic need to make everything feel productive uh, so this uh this accomplishes that goal pretty easily and to, to that end tell me a bit about young Robert and uh what your first exposure was to music in general, what kind of music you heard around the house, if any, and at what point you had, if there was a light bulb moment where you realized, okay, this isn't just something that I love. This is something I need to participate in, in some fashion. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly. Uh, I like, as a kid, I don't really have any, uh, like as a single digit child, I don't have any memories of music so much other than, you know, like whatever a kid would, uh, like uh, my parents weren't necessarily big music people like 
the radio occasionally was on. Um, both of my parents are immigrants. Uh, my mom from Ukraine, my dad from Iran. So there'd be some of that music, I guess, but <clears throat> nothing in the way of like American pop or rock other than what anybody would be listening to. But I, I mean, like I knew Michael Jackson, obviously I was a big fan of his. Uh, I guess that's really like the only young memory thing I have. And then uh, we didn't have, I grew up, like right by Coney Island in New York. Um, it's, it's a neighborhood in Brighton Beach. It's like the neighborhood over with way more Russian people. Uh, and uh, my neighborhood was like, there were only a few buildings that were wired for cable in the 80s and early mm -hmm. 90s. And my particular building did not, like I didn't even have the option to get cable until 1996 and the moment wow. <laughs> the moment it came uh i was like on my parents to get it uh and i was 13 at the time. uh and i think that's kind of obviously then when i really started uh diving into music i was obsessed with mtv and uh i was obsessed with wrestling at the time and i think both of yes. them kind of veered me to uh rock music I remember like uh, wrestler entrance themes, like in WCW in particular, would be kind of knockoffs of alternative bands. Like there would be a Nirvana knockoff, a Pearl Jam knockoff. And just through that, I would start listening to those bands. And, um, <clears throat> and with MTV, I remember when I saw like a, a Marilyn Manson video, I was very much like, oh, this is, <laughs> I like how he, he, uh, how he annoys people. <laughs> yes. uh and like i remember like he really stood out at like one of the video music awards in particular just because he was so in your face i believe it yeah. was the 96 one or 97 maybe uh and with metallic in particular i always like i remember the first metallica song i got into was until it sleeps because that was just the music video they had on wow that's pretty amazing because you know obviously that's thought of in most circles as new metallica yeah. And then the idea that new Metallica is now um, like almost 25 years old. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Like people, you know, people have already born. passed the 20, 20 year anniversary mark for load. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's right. It's insane. It, I mean, time, time constantly uh, blows my mind, <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of how I got into them. And then obviously, you know, understand like all the hits, uh, and I didn't really start diving into Metallica until, again, with the wrestling connection, the wrestler Sting, uh, the, WCW was doing a movie, I don't know if you remember, with David Arquette, and they licensed uh, Seek and Destroy for the movie, and that oh. was Sting's entrance theme, and Sting was the coolest wrestler in WCW, and Seek and Destroy has the best intro riff like that is made tailor made for a wrestler <laughs> yeah that, that, like, that intro riff was the theme music quote unquote for this podcast for a long time up until a few months ago uh my good old dear friend scott ellinger of the band zeo actually wrote composed and performed and recorded and mixed a, a speaking destroy theme oh that's cool now it's on but i basically said uh can you write something that sounds like and justice for all and that's what he did <laughs> It's pretty awesome. That's but cool. yeah, but to your point, um, that's just a great intro. And you know, I, yeah. I was aware of wrestling in the 80s and I was neither, and our mutual friend Josh Bernstein is aware of this. I was neither friend nor foe to wrestling. Like I was, I wasn't a big fan. I wasn't a hater. And I was aware in the 80s of 
you know, Junkyard Dog, Iron Sheik, um, Hulk Hogan, of course, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, you know, anybody who was kind of a WWF star of that time period, like I knew who they were, but I wasn't like regularly watching wrestling matches or buying merch or anything like that. But I would say that going forward beyond that, and this is something that some friends of mine figured out about me 15 years ago or something, which is that I don't know who any athletes are in any sport unless and until they cross over into pop culture by some other means. Yeah. So and in the eighties wrestling was pop culture. So exactly. And, and, and so even in, you know, even in the news, like I know who Michael Vick is and I know that he's a football player, but I couldn't tell you what team, let alone what position or, or anything like that. And not to go on, on too much of a side tangent, but my buddy Andy Biersack of the Black Bell Brides has made it his personal mission over the last two or three years to get me into football. Um, I'm not. I, I'm with you on that. He, yeah, well, he's, he's been giving me like the punk rock because, you know, he's from Cincinnati. His team are the Bengals. The Bengals are uh, like legendarily terrible, as I've come to learn. And they they wear orange and black, cool Halloween colors. He's given me all the selling points Good for like jerseys, why it's nice. punk rock to you know be into the Bengals. <laughs> it is um, very punk rock to like be into a losing team. I was a Mets yes. Fan. I mean, I mean, I still yeah. am, I guess. So, but you know, I follow it less. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but so, but that was so that's been my relationship to wrestling. So when you mentioned Sting, mm-hmm. I remember him. You know, The Crow is my favorite movie of all time. Oh, exactly. Where yeah, who Sting he, was, and I want to say he he wrestled with Jerry Only and Doyle when they were wrestling right or had some uh, yeah like it was it was in that yeah they were feuding together because uh the misfits came in and they were with vampiro uh who was like the anti-sting the okay the like gotcha. evil sting kind of that's how they were positioning him at the time so yeah. yeah they were definitely in the in the same feuding circle but yeah wrestling has a really uh uh special place in my heart like i said my parents were immigrants and i kind of feel like at the time watching you know sesame street and wrestling is what kind of taught me english and it taught me like good versus bad like all those basic building blocks of uh of of growing up it taught me basic xenophobia like who the bad guys are (laughs) (laughs) uh it's something we laugh about now yeah iron eagle and red dawn that that's what that 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 taught me all the basic xenophobia um Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned the Ukrainian side of your family, which I wasn't aware of, and which, mm-hmm. uh, and pardon me if this sounds xenophobic, but I think it explains a little bit of the Peter Steelism that you have. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You've got a, um, you've got a Peter I mean, Steele vibe, and he's Russian, which, so it's adjacent. Yeah, yeah. It's all in that, uh, it's all in that Slavic. And what a, and what a radio and voice you have. Like, I realized I've listened to your podcast stuff, but I didn't. It's dawning on me right now. I, my my voice is a little uh, a little bit uh, hoarse today. Kind of, Everyone says uh, I sound like Seth Rogen, which is weird because I don't smoke weed. I don't hear it at all. Yeah, you sound like Ryan yeah. Downey. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. That's yeah, Seth Rogen. You're gonna hear Seth Rogen sometime and be like, he sounds like Downey. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have the uh, laugh, at least. So that's no, I certainly don't. Uh, so yeah, so then that you know, so Metallica that makes perfect sense. The M, you know the MTV revolution for you being in the '90s because you got cable. And yeah, the- and I, I'm kind of like bummed because I sort of missed the early '90s MTV stuff, which seemed like it was so much fun. And like I've gone back and obviously watched a ton of Headbangers Ball and all that stuff. Yeah, but it kind of it passed me. Like I was more of the TRL generation than the uh, Headbangers yeah. Ball. And but even still, like on TRL, 
it, it was such a wild time because Corn and Limp Bizkit and all of these new metal bands were mm-hmm. even like Papa Roach. You know, like it was so it was such a fun time uh, in pop because like it accepted. TRL would mix up all that stuff. Yeah, you could yeah. have. I remember, I mean, the mid two thousands, even when AFI and Avenged Sevenfold and bands right, like that right. were on TRL. Yeah, I feel Crazy like Avenged Sevenfold might have been like one the of the last, of the, yeah, yeah, last bands that they led into that ecosystem, uh, and, and that really yeah, helped it, to break them. Yeah, and I feel it really helped uh, a lot of people kind of find their genre. Uh, it certainly helped me. Like, it, it was like, oh, this is the stuff that I, like, really am into. You know, like, the pop, the g- generic pop stuff is, like, stuff, it's just uh, repetitive, so that's why I like it. But, like, this stuff I, I was actually drawn to. And then, you know, uh, it was also, like, in high school, I, I had a new set of friends that were also rock fans, and so I, like, I had someone to influence my tastes and then i would just i just dove head in and made uh you know cdr mixtapes for myself nice yeah <laughs> and really like i think the mp3 revolution uh kind of very much helped me uh get in, more into music because i was way too poor to afford to be a, a music collector at the time sure. so it'd only be stuff on the radio or uh or television and then with MP3s, it really did allow me to dig into stuff that I just wouldn't be able to afford to to buy. And did you find that you were the MP3 stuff was allowing you to experiment with stuff and like, oh, this I might be into this, and then you're like, nope, I'm not. Or oh, I might be into this. Yeah, oh, I like, love this. Yeah. Uh, you know, everyone talks about Napster and how great Napster was, which it was, and it, it certainly wasn't the first. I feel like the first, my first, I remember my first MP3 that I downloaded was. Uh, the Will Smith song, I believe getting jiggy with it, that was on the Men in Black soundtrack, just because I was like, what are these MPs? Like, I just downloaded Winamp, and it was like the first one that I was able to find to download. Yeah. Uh, but then, like, it all, you know, Napster was great, but I think the most overlooked piece of software was SoulSeek. And also, oh, AOL I remember, he, I, I remember hearing of that. Uh, so, AOL Instant Messenger, were people IMing each other MP3s? Well, AOL Instant Messenger at one point in the early aughts, had the most killer feature that I, I imagine no software company will ever allow again, which is that you could set a share folder and you can set like a privacy setting so that anyone on your buddy list can look at your share folder. So wow. ev- all of my friends and, and myself just set our music folder our like iTunes folder or whatever it may be as our share folder. And I just have vivid memories of like, 10 o'clock at night just telling my friend like hey let me bust into your <laughs> folder and i would just oh i want to check out this band i want to check out this band and wow. it, that's how all of us kind of shared the bands that we could get into and, and we decided for ourselves like oh i'm in, i'm drawn to this i'm not drawn to this etc yeah it's like a man what a revolution and obviously it comes up on this podcast fairly often in fact i just recorded an episode it's not out yet but with uh, you probably know him actually, Eric German. He's a music business oh, yeah, attorney. And he, I didn't realize this, but he was like the junior lawyer at the firm that represented the recording Academy during oh, Napster. Wow. So we ended up, yeah. And he's like, ah, it's, you know, this is kind of inside baseball copyright stuff. And I'm like, popcorn, like, no, 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 let's, let's do yeah, it. Like we I talked mean, a whole bunch about all of that stuff. <laughs> um, Cause yeah. it does have a correlation to Metallica for sure. Yeah, I remember uh, as, as a kid uh, feeling a bit betrayed by 
them being at the forefront of it. And I, I think publicity wise, it was probably a mistake for them. Uh, Cause it like the stigma still. <laughs> the stigma is still there because you still, you can tell somebody, you know, Oh, Metallica just put up this great live show from 1984 on their site. You should go download. Oh, oh they have that. Exactly. It's like, the thing is, is, uh, you know, and not to belabor it because it has been, you know, discussed to death by you and me and everybody else. But I think the PR mistake was only that when Napster said, Hey, we're just the platform. Like, right. They position themselves know, as the good guys. We, we don't at know. the time. We don't know how to find all these people that you're saying. These are people. It's not us that's putting your music up here. It's all these people. Yeah. If you could tell us who each of the people are, and then that's where you got the photo op of Lars wheeling in the boxes of reams full of paper right, names. Right, yeah. And then it becomes like, whoa, Metallica's going after their fans. And yeah, it was really easy to- I got to, kicked to, off. I was, I was a part of that. Uh, oh, really? I remember, I remember like I got kicked off, but it was really easy to just make a new account. I, of course. I forget what, you know, it wasn't like, it was such a joke. Uh, and then like, it was like waves. It was, I remember that was the first wave getting kicked off. And then there was a wave where a judge ruled, I believe that they had to take off Metallica and Dre and all these other artists. And then yeah. that was kind of like, ah, oh, man, but you could still work around it. There was still like a little glimmer of hope. And then it was totally killed. And that's when I, I found Soulseek and then the other, you know, it was too late. The Pandora's box was open. Yeah, oh, for sure. And, and, you know, and Eric and I spoke about this as well a lot of bands behind the scenes and you, and you'll hear Metallica talk about this in interviews felt the same, but it was really oh, yeah. only Metallica and, and Dr. Dre who put their necks on the line and, and came out sort of publicly against it. And it's difficult to get away from that perception of greedy rock stars and so on. And, and granted, you know, I'm, I am and, and was a huge Metallica fan. So I was a little biased toward their position and also being a journalist and being interested in that stuff even prior to doing it professionally i really followed everything that was being said and i did like the longer reads with the interviews with lars and stuff and i saw it as well this isn't greedy rock stars fighting over a couple pennies no. because this is the most this band is so successful that it can't be about money to them. They could, they're, they're set for life if they don't sell another CD ever. Right. And, and so then I started asking, well, what, what is it about then? Why are, why are they so upset about it? And then you come to find out that there was an unfinished version of the song from the Mission Impossible soundtrack that leaked to a radio station. And then they started asking, how did the radio station get this? And that's how they discovered Napster. As I understand it, that's how the story goes. Yeah, yeah. And so for them, it became more about control. They were just pissed, yeah, that their, like a song of theirs got out before they were able to release it. Yeah, which yeah. makes perfect sense. And really, they were also speaking up for all those smaller artists that yeah. would not have the platform to go on Charlie Rose with Chuck D and debate yes. it. Yeah, like for me at the time as a fan, I was totally against it. But like looking back at it, especially a few years ago, I believe it was like the Apple, when Apple Music started launching and Taylor Swift had that whole thing mm -hmm. where she wanted her specific royalties for the free part. It made me revisit all of those interviews that Lars did. And yeah. looking at it now, it's like, oh, Lars wasn't the bad guy. Uh, the venture capitalists behind Napster yes, and were that's the bad the, guy. That's the big part of the education. Yeah. I feel like it wasn't even the Napster owners that are the bad guy. Like they, I, no. have you seen that documentary downloaded? No, but I should. Uh, I highly recommend it. Alex Winter directed it. Uh, oh, Bill and Ted. Yeah. Uh, From the Lost Boys. 
and and they have all of these archives of interviews with them from the time period. I think some of them were MTV, some of them were others, but they're just these two naive guys. And how much of this is a show? I don't know, but there was like a line where it's just them in their small town being like, yeah, we would have talked to people in the music industry and tried to get licenses, but we just didn't know anybody. <laughs> right, we, right, we're just like enough. a bunch of dorks in a college dorm yeah. building software, which I totally believe. And then it's just that these venture capitalists came in and they saw the money and like that's who Metallica were mad at. And it's a very nuanced argument to explain to a 16 year old kid who's getting music for free. Right. Uh, whereas like now there's so much more education about Silicon Valley. I mean, there's a fucking whole show making fun of it. Yeah. So you really understand who they were actually yes. mad at. And, and when you, and you know, when you think about one of the key people in Napster is the guy Justin Timberlake plays in the Facebook movie. Oh yeah. Sean, you think about uh, how evil Facebook is Sean Parker. Yeah. Sean and, Parker. Thank you. And then uh, that guy, like think about how much of an influence on the world that guy has had. Right. He's completely right. upended the music industry. He's yeah. changed the way people communicate in general, uh, polit like just everything, all technology. And that was a big, a big point that, that Lars was making in that Charlie Rose episode that you mentioned, which I've brought up on the podcast before as well, because you can watch it now with the hindsight of, of 20 years and yeah, it's really everything, Chuck, everything, the great, wonderful, super smart and rad Chuck D says is wrong. And everything Lars says was, was correct and comes to pass. Whereas, right. you know, viewing it through the lens contemporaneously, that wasn't really the, the conventional wisdom. And one of the things that yeah, Lars talks about in there is that, the idea that the argument's not about whether or not we should all be able to get free music, which is what people wanted to make the argument about. The argument was that nothing's free and someone's making money from this and no one would be investing all this capital into Napster if they didn't believe they were going to get a huge return on their investment. And I think which the I biggest, didn't understand at the time. And I feel right. a lot of people didn't, they didn't of get course that. Not. It's, a, it's of hard. Of it. It's nuanced. And yeah. you know what I think drives that point home now is when you show someone a, a aerial photograph of kim.com's house <laughs> and you go oh, right <laughs> and you go this guy bought this house uh from people upload, pirating yeah. albums and yeah and, and and it's and then you ask yourself well how did he make money where's the money come from and then it's like well there's advertising and there's this and that my, my hindsight being 2020 and and not to break my arm pat myself in the back because i have felt this way for a long time but certainly not early enough my thought is that instead of going after individual music fans in any way, shape or form was bad, a bad look. If mm -hmm. The optics, as they say now, what I think they should have done, they being the music industry is gone after hardware manufacturers like Apple. And I say that as an Apple fanboy and the ISPs because, you know, they were here you have here you have apple saying here's this device that holds 10,000 songs it's $200 um and if you want to buy those 10,000 songs and fill it that's going to be $10,000 i mean it was such a wink wink like we know that you're not going to fill this $200 device with $10,000 right. worth you of could, files. You you're going to steal all those files. From yeah. the CDs that you bought, sure. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then also you have uh, internet service providers who are generating more and more revenue because people are paying for faster and faster connections because they need those connections to pirate 
more and more stuff so right. and faster but the the counter to that would be like you're kind of like to go after the isps if there was regulation on that that's kind of veering into net neutrality territory like would isps charge more for you to download music you know like yeah and and, and, and eric weird. eric really broke into what the different you know he had this great analogy where if you can use a crowbar to clobber somebody over the head or, or break in somewhere, but you can also use it for construction and all of its intended purposes. Right. So when someone uses a crowbar to break into your store, do you sue the, the crowbar manufacturer? And there's a whole bunch of nuance and details and, and weeds to get into about how this all relates to, you know, what the issue at hand, I, I think now as things sort of settle and even out and the you see all these reports about how much money universal and warner and all the record companies are making again now and how it's all on the upswing when you hear artists complain and rightfully so that they're still not seeing anything from streaming my argument is well that's because of all the same old problems that were always there the same crooked deals and accounting because you have a shitty deal yeah all of that stuff back when cds were 18 bucks at tower none of that's changed (laughs) i think like even Corey taylor was saying like his band slipknot was on like a six album deal so they just fulfilled their deal to roadrunner with this last album and their digital like when they signed their contract like digital didn't exist so like they have the shittiest digital deal and and they're not seeing any money but it's like it's really just because they didn't negotiate it at the time you know they didn't didn't have the foresight so i think a lot uh, a bit too much of the blame goes on spotify i'm for sure and the the thing with spotify is if they didn't exist the alternative was free and that's what i like to remind people Mm -hmm. was that well it was no no one's gonna buy an 18 dollars cd anymore that's done so free is the only other alternative until they're illegal streaming you know places that people yeah, can like, get to with that are accessible easily yeah. and my argument has always been that most people would prefer to do it the way that's the most convenient number one mm-hmm. and if the most convenient way also happens to be legal they would rather feel better about it your hardcore yeah, pirates who are on the dark web they're never coming back they're never going to feel like they should pay for anything but the average person myself included i'm somebody that if you emailed me two months ago and said, Hey, I've got the new Deftones record. Here's a Dropbox link. You know, I'm going to grab it, but I'm not somebody that is going to sit down at night and go, I wonder if the Deftones album leaked. I wonder if it's out there. Yeah. Look for it. I, I wouldn't even know where to start. I wouldn't want to, I don't care. Who has the time? Um, I think most of those people are just kids who are broke anyway. And they're just sure. always online and it's cheaper to get a $40 high speed internet package and buy all these cds like you said so yeah uh, yeah but i do think that like on the uh, like nowadays i feel like metallica is completely boosting up the (laughs) metal uh journalism industry in in, like they're like 30 percent or 40 percent of the like of of our revenue drivers just in terms of like the stories that that they have or just like around their promoting their material metal sucks has that article that just says tool slipknot metallica over and over and over for like 2000 yeah. words <laughs> and i mean it's 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 a joke but it's yeah. like there's truth in the joke 
That's the uh, economy. Like, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're such a huge part and not even like beyond just the stories they're I mean, they're one of the biggest bands in the world, like one of the biggest pop bands in the world. Mm-hmm. So, and they're one of the at, biggest innovators with technology, which is what is yeah, frustrating to me when, when they yeah. get painted with this brush that they were somehow these Luddites or that they were anti-progress. No, remember, yeah, even at the time, they set up that like live bootleg website. Yeah. In the late 90s, you could, you could yeah. sign up to like get all of their bootlegs for a flat rate. Soundboard but recordings like the, and yeah. Uh, even like with all of these projects that they try, like the movie that they did and all this stuff, like, okay, the movie was a bomb, but the movie also uh, had a Hollywood budget, which Mm -hmm. means a Hollywood budget for advertising, which means they took out big ad spends with every metal publication out there. Mm -hmm. And in, in the, in the world of like mainstream media, those dollars might not be that much, but like to a small publication like us, it was one of the, at the time, one of the largest buys of the year for us. So like that money made a huge difference for uh, outlets like us. And I think like they don't get enough credit for, for that aspect of it, you know? Like, sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and also, you know, one of the things like about the film, much like uh, the Orion music festival that they did for two years, those yeah, were another, another example of like, you know, yeah, money exactly. losing ventures that they're doing for the art of it for the, if it succeeds, awesome, but they're still plowing ahead with it anyway, because it's what they want to do. It's what they believe in. It's where their hearts are in that. And, and that's the thing that, and you probably have a different take on this, given the era the band was in when you discovered them anyway. But anytime I hear people talk about them selling out, whether it was selling out on the black album, selling out in the nineties, I don't think that they've ever sold out because I think that they were always true to who they were in the moment. And in the nineties, they were listening to Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. They were rediscovering their Zeppelin and Aerosmith and Finn Lizzy records that they were into before they were into Venom and Merciful Fate. Going through divorces. Going through divorces and being very successful to where I think around the era of load and reload were they to have looked and sounded and and smelled and dressed and been everything like master of puppets that would have been selling out because that would have been phoning you know they were doing exactly what they wanted to do and people were just mad because it wasn't what the people wanted them to do yeah and it's all Uh, time place and circumstance it's when and where you discovered something and that gets back to and i say this on the podcast all the time you know, as Lars always points out, there were people that were mad that Ride the Lightning had a ballad, you know? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's at each stage in the, I mean, I'm, I'm now, I'm accustomed to people loving the Black Album and especially people loving Justice for All. You know, when you talk to like guys from Avenged or, you know, for a lot of people of a certain generation, that's the record to them. And that's old school and maybe that's the last great album and so on. And I'm just older enough to remember that that was the record that all of my thrash metal friends bailed out on. We had our little metal group in my high school, our little corner of a lunch table. And I, when I discovered Metallica, Garage Days was the current release. And so I was enough of a fan that I was there on street date to buy Unjustice for All. And I remember the conversation the next morning the consensus around the lunch table was that Dyer's Eve was the only good song. <laughs> and the rest was, I, was, I could see it. was trash. It was mid-tempo. It wasn't yeah. fast enough. The songs were too long. It was, I mean, you know, 
there's no bass. Like you were, you heard it all. And, and I love that album. I love it for a variety of reasons. I've continued to love it, but you know, that was the time when a couple of years later, when I'm in high school still, you know, I, I had a very interesting high school experience because I got into metal and, and punk and hardcore and everything in like seventh, eighth grade. And then when I was a junior in high school, the black album hit and Metallica went from a thing that me and my dirtbag friends liked and skateboarded to and whatever, and got made fun of about to something that jocks and cheerleaders were now into. And that was super weird. And then my senior year in high school is when Nevermind came out. So it was like a really strange, I've, I've told this story before, but uh, there was a kid that I was friends with in elementary school and middle school. And then we kind of just weren't friends anymore. And he became a jock and I became a Hessian. And we didn't talk all through high school. And we weren't like enemies. We just weren't friends. We had nothing in common. We never talked. And I have this vivid memory of one day my senior year in high school, I'm getting books out of my locker and this kid walks up to me. We haven't spoken a word to each other all four years of high school. And he goes, Hey man, what's that guy saying that song? And I knew exactly what he meant. He meant smells like teen spirit. That guy was Kurt Cobain. He wanted me to, you know, give him the decoder ring to explain Nirvana to him and me, you know, uh, fully a, fully demonstrative of elitism in subculture, I went, I don't even like Nirvana and walked away from <laughs> it. You know, uh, which I love Nirvana, but it, it, you know, it was, it was interesting. And so the reason why I bring that up is because by the time the jocks discovered Metallica on the Black Album, all of my metalhead friends, that's when they had discovered, you know, the first Morbid Angel record, Death, uh, you know, they were getting into Cannibal Corpse. They were getting, you know, they took a turn more extreme and then it became like all the thrash bands were corny and old and, and silly and death metal was where it's at. And I feel like a lot of that was reactionary to, I want to continue to be into stuff that those people could not like. <laughs> oh, I, I, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I've, I've totally experienced those feelings as well in my fandom of, of various things. Uh, it's funny you say that. Cause like growing up, I always was like, jealous of essentially your generation of getting to experience all that stuff in the first way like on its way up because i would mm -hmm. have loved to see like nirvana on bleach or what like i had such a big nirvana phase as a kid uh before my metallica phase like they were the first band that i really like was obsessed with and then and it's so funny again like looking back now like watching kurt cobain clips it's like oh this guy's like this guy's not a prophet. He's just a fucking right. guy, you know? Yeah. Like he's just a yeah. strung out guy uh, who made fun songs. That's it. Uh, but like at the time, I was very into <laughs> everything about him because he stood for like, what's right? And I, I hated oh, for sure. Courtney Love. Like she killed him, whether she pulled yeah. the trigger or not. It was yeah. her fault, which is such He's a the guy that goes on the cover of the biggest corporate rock magazine with a t-shirt that says corporate rock still sucks. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I was like, oh, he showed them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really like, I bought yeah. into the whole, the whole yeah. image. Yeah. So yeah. it's funny that you say that like at the time, people who were in the scene were kind of like, it was way too... I could totally see how like it was way too mainstream. It was annoying that all these other people, these outsiders to the Absolutely. Season, you know? And it didn't change how great the songs were. And I mean, to me, the Black Album is undeniable how great the songs are and the sound of it mm -hmm. and everything. But yeah, there was a feeling that it was, it was overwhelming when it wasn't yours anymore. Like this That's how I felt about like uh, the new wave of American heavy metal scene, like mm. after that Ozfest. Interesting, uh, 2004. 
it was just kind of like okay i'm in 2003 like, which one was uh no no 2005 was oh, okay 2004 was the first year that they had uh well three 2003 was kill switch and shadows fall okay and I'm, it was I'm right a, when okay. howard joined but but everything else the whole rest of the side stage was with the exception of voivod i think it was all maybe cradle was that year i don't know but it was a bunch of like buy on band new metal right right, right. also yeah. rounds and shads and Killswitch did so well that the next year 2004 it was like the new england metal fest yes that's <laughs> what it was i was managing bleeding through and throwdown at the time had just started in 2003 yeah um, that's my it, favorite Ozfest, basically <laughs> okay yeah so they were they were both on in 04 and unearth lamb of god otep lacuna coil slipknot was headlining the second stage slipknot that was headlining that second stage um uh, it was like everybody. I want to uh, say Dimu was on. Yeah, Dimu was on main stage. It was that. Yeah, I, it, I mean, it was it was incredible. Yeah, and 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 that MTV had that terrible reality show, Battle for Ozfest, which yes, all the side stage bands participated in. And, uh, yeah, and, and yeah. then the next year, I feel is when it it was like, all right, this is just too much now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the Judas Priest year with the reunion, and then they had, and it was just yeah. I was already kind of moving on to more experimentally stuff but also that was like already when metal injection uh launched so i'm just writing about these bands oh wow so what year did metal injection launch uh it launched 2004 so oh, that's basically, perfect yeah that's so a lot of, I, I say it's perfect because that was not to cut you off but that was right when i started managing metalcore bands okay the end of 2003 beginning of 2004 and one of my first big acts as manager was lobbying through all kinds of different means, including Bleeding Through's tour manager at the time who was dating Kelly Osborne. Fun fact. Uh, but various lobbying with which I was able to get Bleeding Through onto Ozfest, onto the second stage, and at a discount for the buy-on. And then yeah, I was, was able so to crazy. use that to push Throwdown in. And I actually had Zayo offered a slot as well. And I remember Carl uh, from Ferret, who was the band's new label at the time, having a, a long conversation about and i don't think he was wrong but that it wasn't the best way to spend money on zeo because zeo yeah isn't the type of band that's going to try i mean dave peters from throwdown for example got out there and moves the crowd and you know what i mean like it's it's, it's, it's yeah. a certain type of zeo's not a festival band in that same way what's cool about zeo is they might play one show with their backs to the crowd the whole time you know, like, that, that's yeah there were certain bands i as i you know would get to know the bands better uh year after year and like kind of hang out with them and new york would always be kind of in the like either in the middle or at the very end so they're mm -hmm. already like beaten down and like you know yeah. and and some of these bands are like oh we, we've just been blowing so much money and nobody cares about us and you yeah, know we're not the type of band sure. this. and it was it was very eye-opening to learn about the you know you have to uh, buy in for promo and and essentially mm -hmm. like pay for your slot quote unquote yeah um, it it was pay to play but the way they got away with it is they said it was a marketing spend right and what the marketing spend got you was your video on the jumbotron in between bands and a place on the cd samplers they handed out that nobody wants that end up on the ground so but i get it technically that's what you were paying for but you were really yeah. paying to play and and so your label would have to fund not only this exorbitant and don't get me wrong, it, it, I think it was all worth it. I'm not knocking the Osborne camp for it. Right. But you, but you had to pay a bunch of money to, to be on the second stage unless you were one of the fixed headliners on the second stage. And then you had to be on a bus 
because the way that tour is routed, there's no way to do it in any other kind of vehicle. And yeah, that's a bunch of money. So far in between the, the gigs that you yeah, can't, so bands far. can't do it themselves. They have no, and, and some, and you could book sideshows, which we certainly did, mm-hmm. but there's something about sideshows. People don't come to them for some reason. It's gotta be part of a tour. You can have a band that draws a thousand people in some town with a great support package on a tour that's like their album release tour or whatever. And that same band can come back on an off date in between while they're supporting some other tour and draw a hundred people. And it's just a thing that I've never quite even figured out, but there's just a, I don't know what it is, but, but, but it worked, you know, bleeding through is a good case study because we were a pay to play band in 2004. And then we came back in 2006 as one of the fixed headliners on the second stage and getting paid really well. So it was, you know, sort of like they proved themselves and then they grew in between. And, um, but yeah, but that, that's interesting that I didn't realize that was the year metal injection started because yeah, that really puts you right in the zeitgeist of the new wave. of. Yeah, it was a really, really fun time. And, uh, so when I got to college, I joined my college radio station and that was kind of like, Oh, this is cool. Uh, I like, and I was like, so into, music like I, it was my main hobby at the time uh and i uh just a, another hobby was just like web design kind of i was self-taught so i was mm-hmm. always toying around like i used to when i was actually in high school i had like a wrestling rumors website that i built up <laughs> right. uh that actually uh started making like really crazy money like i i i am not exaggerating when i say there were a few months where i made five grand uh only because this was right at the beginning of like the dot-com bubble and like yeah like advertising was in like there were just like these weird ad spends that like nobody for like the like i didn't have an ad sales team you know like i subscribed to like the the version of like whatever google adsense is now like whatever yeah and you probably didn't really have metrics to show anybody either where it's like well who's coming to your website you're like you know right yeah there was it was such a wild wild west and so so the money was there to be had and there were a few months where i was making crazy as a kid you know like it was it was wild so i had that experience of running a website and i enjoyed that and with having a interest in like hardcore and punk i i started a like a, a punk website for like a punk news website in college is kind of like a, just a way to flex my web design muscle sort of. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was getting into the metal scene and me and a few friends and, you know, and, and then I was like, Oh, well let's do a metal show. Uh, we have like a radio show. So we were going to do like a radio show and then also have a website to kind of supplement it. And we also yeah. were going to do. Remember like, when the like, websites were like the. The supplement. The backup they were marketing things. Something yeah. Else. yeah. It's so funny. Uh, and then we were also going to do a, a video show because we really wanted to do. Uh, uh, we, we would stay up and there was this public access show in our Brooklyn neighborhood that was so bad. And we would just be like, you know, hanging out later. And we'd be like, oh, this is so terrible. We could do so much better. And then we we're like, well. Why don't we do it? <laughs> was it was it monkey butt sex or was this after monkey butt sex? Uh, this was not. I don't know what monkey butt sex. Is. Oh, that was the local access show in New York, that was like a metal punk hardcore thing. Uh, Josh and Jason Diamond, the Diamond Twins, and Ian Robinson were the three guys who did it. Oh, okay, okay, that was in Manhattan. I don't. Okay, like, yeah, and that, that was how Ian was like discovered right, right. by MTV. 
Yeah, uh, uh, I didn't remember the name, but yeah, I, I heard of that story. But yeah, no, that would have been that would have been earlier though. That would have been probably was like called ninety nine two thousand. Dark Side of the Pit, maybe something mm-hmm. like that, or Dark. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but then, so then we had the idea to do the public access show, and we did the website to promote the show, and like they did not care about our show. They gave us a three a.m. time slot, and then we just started noticing we were getting more attention for the website, more traffic to the website than you know more reach than just a brooklyn public access 3 a.m slot yeah so we just started focusing on that and then eventually moved to on-demand video and spent a lot of money on that (laughs) and now we just you know host on youtube uh with the video stuff and then kind of transform the site into more of a news destination yeah which is crazy because you know again speaking of mtv you know i came in in an era when broadcast was still king you know, and, yeah. and the on-air reporters at MTV News had managers and agents and they were, they were talent, you know, and, and the Yeah, webs- I was so influenced by all of those people, like Tabitha Soren, bless her heart, Kurt Loder. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> uh, just the entire MTV aesthetic had a huge influence on me. Yeah, and, and, and me too. And it was, it was a dream to, um, to go work in that department. But it was a very transitional time in that I remember you know, the MTV.com was thought of as like the throwaway lesser than B-sides, you know, that sounds like you'd pitch something in a meeting. That sounds like something for online. You know, I mean, just so completely turned around from how everything runs now. Yeah. You know, where TV looks like the internet now. I, I feel like it was, this is weird. And I don't know if this is backed up by any actual data, but I feel like I remember post 9-11 feeling like, television had turned into the internet when you started seeing a ticker on every 24 hour news channel and all these little pop-up bubbles and screen within screens. And it feels like broadcast TV really took a turn, you know, 19 years ago, 20 years ago. To the like ticker resemble. I remember. Yeah. Right yeah. after nine 11, cause there was so much developing news at the time. Yeah. They really needed to get it to you. And then they were like, Oh, well, let's and then it just thing. never went away. <laughs> yeah. And then there were like two tickers and then a side <laughs> ticker. Yeah. I, I totally hear you. And, yeah. and you're right. And also I think it had to do with the television screens kind of getting wider. Mm. Uh, like it's the aspect ratio changed. So there's more room on the screen for graphics. Yeah. Too. That makes sense. Uh, and, but now you're totally right. It's like it's like the old uh, Yahoo.com homepage is essentially like if you turn on CNN or MSNBC, it's like <laughs> exactly what it looks. Like. Everyone looks like what the old Bloomberg TV used to look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and it's crazy to think, yeah, about how many times I heard, well, that sounds like something for online, or you could put that online, you know, uh, because the goal was always to have your stuff on broadcast. You know, yeah, and our I, goal I would, was always to have a TV show with Matt. Like that yeah. was like, we're going to do this. And then someone's going to give us a TV show. Who? I don't know. And it was so funny because right after we launched, uh, Headbangers Ball launched in the summer of 2004. And, and like, you know, uh, with our delusions of grandeur, we kind of felt like we had something to do with that, like as if we did. Uh, but it was very funny because it was like, we were competing with them without them even <laughs> knowing. Right, right. Them. Yeah. But what's, what's, what's interesting is like, we would get to know some of the producers and you know it like it was very eye-opening because like they we would talk to them like we would run into them for example at ozfest or one Mm -hmm. of those kind of things where all all media kind of descends onto the local destination to get their interviews with all 10 bands it's just an easy way to get tons of content and we would be talking to them and be like yeah we're doing this and we're going to tape this and i remember the producer kind of telling me like that's so great that you guys are under the radar to be able to pull that off. Cause we would, we'd have to like license them. We'd have to do that. And I'm like, yes. like, wow. Oh, it was, man. And yeah. it was just like, you know, I was so naive to 
how production works and it's like you realize that when when these out like when us like for them to go to us to shoot sharon osborne said you have to pay us to allow you to shoot here uh you know we didn't have to pay anybody <laughs> yeah because <laughs> they know we don't have any fees and licensing and right right lawyers yeah. and and yeah i mean dude i there were so many occasions where i would spend a whole day doing a shoot right and it's like i you know ozzy we'll use ozzy as an example i went to i spent an entire day at ozzy's house i did this amazing one-on-one interview with him just him and i and our crew and you know the interview was probably 45 minutes and the end result of all of that is like a 45 second soundbite during a news hit on trl and 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 it was still an era where if you couldn't promise that 45 second soundbite they wouldn't even want you to come and meanwhile in my mind and you know i turned i did a great written piece from that 45 minute interview and it was on the website and I, but that was all like an afterthought still it was still that old model you know and i was caught up in it too like because i i had opportunities to do more on the website and i would always fight for opportunities to do more on the tv side because i had that probably generational thing or whatever where i just felt like that was that was legit that was like real mtv news if i had my stuff on tv my stuff on the website well, that's just the website anybody can do that but i've got this yeah. news piece on tv and also MTV yeah, had much changed. more cachet than it was before they just yes, yes, dove that's a, right into uh, incre- like That's incredibly important to point content. out. Yes, it mattered. And, and people took your phone calls faster and everyone were, were, they were excited to get to, to have you show up, you know, to see the MTV News mic flag would like excite someone's camp. Yeah, but, right. Because yeah, also they would show totally those, they, they would have those segments every hour too at the yeah. like 10 to the hour. Uh, yep. So they definitely it was like good promotion. It was like, it, it, there was a for sure. And, and, and also as in right in that early two thousands period, when I started there, it was, you did a news piece. Yeah. You were cutting it down to 45 seconds or a minute, but you were cutting packages for a TRL news hit for the 10 to the hour, every hour hits for MTV two, you would do a, a, a different version that would air. Um, like there were lots of, and there was MTV U at one point that were like, Mm-hmm. Lots of places to put stuff. Um, and I remember on the website, they were pretty proactive with like putting longer versions of those. Oh, for sure. Like, the people that yeah. ran the news side of uh, the, uh, sorry, the website of the news department were awesome and, and legitimate. And you, I'm sure you know a lot of them now, people that were there when I was yeah. there, like, like John Wiederhorn, you probably know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had, there was our little group of, of rock and metal people where we all found each other and 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 it's funny because I was my main beat was movies. I actually started when just after Chris Connolly had left and they weren't sure if they were gonna cover movies anymore at all. Which was I remember like, then they started launching they launched those few blogs, right? There was like a movie blog, the metal blog. Yeah, like, that, like, oh, that was a few blogs. years later. Yeah. <laughs> they, when they were doing blogs. Yep. There was yeah. the Hollywood Crush blog, which did like CW shows and and then there was uh Splash Page, which did comic stuff and Oh man, I could, this is a whole other podcast. I could tell you all kinds of stories, <laughs> but um, Metallica, <laughs> let's talk about uh, in the 10 minutes we have before I talk to someone from Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> um, let's, cool. let's talk about the Metallica relationship with Metal Injection or lack thereof or sure. what's been your, um, as a brand, as a news mm. gatherer. What's, well, like I said, uh, I have 
so much appreciation and respect for Metallica. Like, I wouldn't have a full-time job doing what I wanted if it wasn't for Metallica in many different ways. The ways that, you know, like from just they inspired me to get into the genre to having the largest band in the world to write about that the majority of my audience cares about to then also be able to expose that audience to, you know, smaller grindcore bands that only 5% of my audience cares Which about. Which is in the Metallica spirit because Metallica right. I, turned us all on to Sam Hain and, you know, I mean, just go on down the list throughout the years. That's what they, right. they love. There's so love many subgenres of music that you can dive into just by getting into Metallica. Mm -hmm. And any, like there's elements of, of any sort of derivative genre of metal, uh, that you can get into and also just their own influences like they're so like getting into diamond head for example like diamond head wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for metallica nobody would be for talking sure. about that right now I, I mean i i had animal from anti-nowhere league on the podcast and you know he, he told the story about how getting on stage at wembley in the early 90s and singing so what with metallica resurrected the band he was he was working construction and then anti-nowhere league's been a band again since then <laughs> That's, and, but there's so many stories like, like Metallica have, has given so many people these kind of opportunities and I yeah. feel it's like very overlooked and I think they're very very humble for the level of rich that they are like they're insanely insanely rich but they still kind of like I remember when they were doing their anniversary they went back down to their old haunt in San Francisco and they just hung out with all their old friends they still keep in touch with everyone from the scene so I, I, I really think that there's something to that they're real people and uh, I have had the opportunity to uh, interview James and uh, Robert Trujillo. And James Hatfield is my favorite member of Metallica. I was always a, a James guy. They're like uh, the Beatles, by the way. I love that you said that because I, I, there, <laughs> there, there's some bands where there's the one or two people that are kind of the leader and everyone else is sort of interchangeable. Maybe even a band that you really love, but if you bumped into the bass player on the street, you wouldn't recognize them or her. But Metallica to me is one of those Beatles, Stones, one of those bands where there's the unique chemistry of how they all four work together, but they each have their distinctive personas and everybody. Yeah, can kind and of James have always seemed like the coolest, like kind of goth in a way, like, Oh, he's so mysterious. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. was also a big Newstead guy. I always loved that Newstead was like the biggest fan of Metallica and he was like the cheerleader for the band. And I, I supported that. And I was, I was very upset when there was that whole thing. With them. Uh, and Absolutely. I actually, Oh, I interviewed uh, Newstead as well. Like I met Newstead, but that was, I kind of don't count it because it was on a solo run and it was, you know, like he's just looking to promote, but he was absolutely like the nicest person to talk sure. to. And, and just a total sweetheart. But I interviewed that uh, Headfield and uh, Robert Trujillo. It was sad circumstances because it was on the red carpet of the Golden Gods the day oh, that Jeff right. Hanneman died. I've watched that interview. <laughs> I've uh, seen your yeah. interview. Yeah. And it was just, uh, I was like trying so, like I'm, I almost can't watch it because like I made, I made a really bad joke at the beginning of the interview of like, oh, I'm, I'm not really sure who this band is who I'm interviewing because it's like, of course I know who I'm interviewing. I'm interviewing yeah. my fucking favorite yeah. band in the world. Especially and, and, it's something like the Golden Gods where they are the, you know, it's not even just the Grammys where it's like, they're yeah. a big band, but Lady Gaga's uh, here or whatever. It's <laughs> like, yeah, it's the Golden Gods. Like there's no one bigger. So yeah, I, I really tried hard not to like lose my shit at talking to James. And I like, I have to also preface this by like being able to secure the interview. It required, like I was practically on my knees begging their publicist, like, please just two questions, just two, qu like, just let me please talk, <laughs> you know, cause they're going down the line and we're kind of in the middle already. They already did like 10 interviews and like, yeah. two, you know, and, but just having that was just such a, such a great time. And then seeing them perform in that tiny 
Noki Theater. Yeah. Uh, it was so fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, and I've with Halford. Yes, with right? Halford too. Yeah. And another unbelievably nice person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually just interviewed him uh, last week about his book. That's right. I saw some of that actually too. Yeah. I think. Really, really. Yeah. Um, I love yeah, that. He's, he's great. And he's, and but, he's such a, a champion for Metallica. Yeah. But yeah, just to uh, wrap it all up in a bow, Metal Injection wouldn't exist. Uh, without Metallica we write about them at least once a day or like some peripheral story about a Metallica mm. cover or whatever. like they are just the ubiquitous force in heavy metal like like the there and really they are the trickle-down economy of the heavy metal they are the trickle-down economy that's because, such a great way to put it especially the tech economy which yeah. so many of us depend on especially now in the midst of the pandemic and so on and so forth you know for all the jokes about clickbait and and this and that, um, people don't realize how hard it is to make money from the internet <laughs> and yes, how and, important and it is that there's from, uh, a niche genre like metal on yeah. the internet. <laughs> yeah. And then to have those Metallica slipknots tools, but especially Metallica at the tippy top to generate traffic for you. By, and, and, the, and one thing people don't realize is it doesn't have to be clickbait. It doesn't have to, you know, Metal Injection, for example, is a reputable site that has integrity and honesty and isn't running misleading headlines and this and that. The band invites further study and discussion and conversation. That's why, you know, when I came up with the idea for this podcast in 2016, another friend of mine came up with an idea for a Metallica podcast like two months later. And then since both of us launched, there's like four or five of them now. You know, I love, it's it. like, I love that there's like multi generational Metallica families now. I love yeah. that you could basically, you know, they're kind of almost like Kiss in a way, but sl- like n- they don't get that backlash of like <laughs> right. Basically, everything in your house could be Metallica branded at this point. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's good. Like they're just such a force, uh, and and I'm so happy uh, that they're around and they're such an important and part. And yeah, like the trick, like what I was saying with the trickle down thing is like they allow me to write about these smaller bands that you know exactly and that's something people need to keep in mind yeah yeah for sure but and like all these other outlets as well like it's not like it's i'm i'm a one-off like (laughs) you know the traffic patterns are the same for all of our sites so if it wasn't for these bigger bands we would not be able to give these smaller bands exposure speaking of the the stuff all around your house you might have seen me post this on instagram but i love it a friend of mine sent me that as a surprise i got one of those one thing that James Hetfield doesn't get credit for is what a great graphic designer he is. Yeah. He designed that logo. He designed so much of their... One of the most iconic logos of all time for anything, for any brand. Coca-Cola. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. And it's like so copied and it's so recognizable. Like mm-hmm. if, if people mock it, like, you know, like, oh, like when there's a character on a show that, you know, like I'm a rock person now, like they're going to have <laughs> yeah. that logo. They're going to use that yeah. design to like emphasize that. And I think... Yeah, he's re- like their branding is just on another level. Incredible. Yeah. And his yeah. aesthetics and his taste. And, you know, I just did an interview with Dirty Donnie, who did their all the hand drawn artwork for their pinball machine. And he was mm-hmm. a guy that started working at HQ. What was he doing? He was doing like a mural for Kirk or something. It was when they were first setting up HQ. And then he just ended up there for like years. <laughs> doing That's like, awesome. all kinds of stuff. That's a, Yeah, they're um, so loyal to these, like, oh, this is a good guy. Let's give him a chance. Yes. Let, let's keep him around. I love that. Big That's time. So important. It's one of my favorite things about it. Uh, well, dude, I gotta, you gotta come back. We gotta do more. 
I have plenty to say about Metallica. My, I was going to say, pleasure. we have so much to talk about that <laughs> Metallica just weaves in and out. Yeah. Uh, I'm a huge advocate for them. I'm a huge advocate for you, Ryan. Thank you for I'm your massive weekly, advocate of yours. Oh, thank you. The weekly newsletter always keeps me informed on who's, who's making the sales. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you are, uh, yeah, you're one of the people in our community that I, you know, we don't get to see each other, you know, even prior to 2020, we don't get to see each other all the time or whatever, but you're like one of those, you know, family member, cousinish like you know we've got our little there's our little crews and clicks yeah, and our little you know. as we say in, in the jewish community our little family <laughs> indeed. <laughs> indeed and every time bernstein will tell me that you and him hung out and went to wrestling or whatever i'm always like yeah oh yeah we have like a whole wrestling crew or yeah four horsemen it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> four horsemen of digital metal wrestling fans yeah exactly <laughs> i love it um, well, dude, thanks for coming on and doing this and for representing the colors in the background. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, man, we'll do it again.